Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I run the centre but I'm also a novelist and a writer in many different fields. And today is one of my very favourite kind of episodes because I am joined by a fellow writer, but um, this particular writer is wandering in realms completely unknown to me, which is space. So welcome very much to David Levine. Um, Yeah, David is the winner of the Hugo Award for Best Short Story and an author of many novels. Um, But today we're particularly going to be thinking about his next book, which is called The Kuiper Belt Job. And we'll put the link to David's website in the show notes so you can go and look at everything David's been getting up to. Mm -hmm. So welcome, David. First of all, your route into writing science fiction. Uh, Are you a scientist yourself? Is that where it comes from? Or were there some writers that you read along the way that inspired you to go into this genre? Well, my route into science fiction started uh, when I was wee. Um, my father was a uh, science fiction reader. He read the pulp magazines uh, in in the forties and fifties, um, and so they were all those those magazines and and the novels were just around the house when I was growing up. So it's almost inevitable that I would have wound up as a science fiction reader. Um, and so I, you know, am I a scientist? Uh, I'm a technologist. Um, I spent, uh, I'm retired now, uh, but I spent my career working for companies like Tektronix, Intel, and McAfee, uh, first as a technical writer, then as a software engineer, uh, then as user interface designer. And then finally, before I retired as user interface architect. So I've been working in the, uh, in, in the space between humans and machines for my whole career. And by the way, I got that from my father as well. He was a professor of computer science, um, also specializing in what, the, what they used to call the man-machine interface. Uh, now we call the the human-machine or user interface. Yeah, user interface. That just goes to show how the humans are getting erased from the whole idea yeah. that it could be robotic users in the future yeah. yeah really eventually we'll just have we'll just have ai ai, AI software talking to ai yeah. uh ai customers and there'll be no humans in the loop whatsoever um yeah oh and by the way the term user interface has been replaced by ux user experience oh, um no. yeah that that's a it's a terminology change that's happened in the, in the last 20 30 years um and like all 
uh, trends of labeling things differently. It may not have a lot of actual impact on uh, what people actually do, but you know, there, there are, there are fads and trends in, uh, in human interface as there are in anything. Yeah, and absolutely. So the Pulp Fiction world, I've heard about mainly through like secondhand through reading things like, um, uh, the Atwood, what is the book? The Pulp, one of the blind assassin, I think has a lot about Pulp Fiction in it. The Margaret Atwood book. I haven't okay. actually read any. About that one. Yeah. I haven't read any Pulp Fiction myself. Are you aware of who the writers are when you read the Pulp Fiction? Are there big names or was it more like a comic where you'd have to sort of be in the know to know who the writers are? Well, the big names in pulp, um, unfortunately, some of the biggest names of the early pulp era, I'm talking about the 20s and 30s, are people like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft um, and L. Ron Hubbard actually was a okay. very right. in, in, the, in the early pulp era. Other uh, other writers of pulp adventure fiction, uh, not necessarily science fiction, include um, Edgar Rice Burroughs and, uh, oh, what's his name? He did the, he did the, the Conan series, Howard. No, not Ron Howard. Uh, any, anyway, yeah. So, so the the Conan the Conan books, um, and also a lot of a lot of the pulps. Uh, there was a lot of just sort of generic adventure and mystery. Uh, Leslie Charteris, the Saint, uh, was uh, was a pulp mystery uh, genre. So, um, so the thing is, is that the pulp magazines, um, if you think about what the street was like, you, you, you know, go walking down the main street in 1920, 1930, and you would see magazines for sale all up and down the street. That there would be like a newsstand on the corner that would be just just floor to ceiling of of all of these magazine titles face out. And these were this was the popular culture in the days before radio. Um, that before radio, if you wanted cheap light entertainment you would buy a pulp magazine from from the magazine rack and these things were called pulps because they were made of incredibly cheap paper yeah. we're talking about paper that literally had chunks of wood coming out of it this was this was paper with so much undigested wood and so much acid that even you know even when it was just a couple of months old it would already be yellowing and decaying because it would be eating itself alive uh there are a lot of people who collect these old pulp magazines and just preserving them from their own self-destructive tendencies is a big problem here so i mean and the thing is is that these pulps this is not quality literature um i mean we use pulp as a synonym for bad um because they were very bad they were written extremely quickly and 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 turned out they were it was as i said it, you know it, this was popular entertainment in the days before radio before television um so the pulp writers were grinding out uh grind grinding out their um their product don't call it literature um as quickly as they could and getting paid pennies a word now admittedly you know five cents a word in 1920 was actually something that you could live on uh many magazines today are paying that same five ten cents a oh word yeah and, completely uh, it's not yeah. a living wage. yeah so you you started with this sort of rich um like like an earth or a prepared bed of all these things around the house where you've got the pulp fiction with the many different story styles and a father who's enthusiastic about it. Was there one particular story, perhaps a novel or something, which actually was like your gateway to thinking, oh, yeah, I could do this, that led you to taking this path of actually writing your own stories? I can name a couple of novels that 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 
struck me significantly when I was a teenager. Um, one is called Hospital Station uh, by James White. Um, this is uh, what we used to call a fix-up novel, which is to say it's a bunch of short stories published in a single uh, in a single novel with some connecting material to make it feel more novel-like. Mm -hmm. um, and Hospital Station is the story of a uh, of an interstellar multi-species hospital. Um, and the thing about Hospital Station that was kind of unique at the time and still makes it very memorable and significant to me is that it was all about people from different species coming together to solve problems. Um, this was not, you, you know, I mean, the the contemporary science fiction at the time that White invented Hospital Station was um, typically on the cover of these cheap magazines. You'd have what they called the unholy trinity: the boy, the babe, and the bem. You know, the 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 the, the jack jawed space hero, um, the 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 sexy the sexy space heroine with with her with her you know brass brazier and 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 uh, globe helmet, um, and the bug eyed monster, some some kind of horrible science fiction monster. Um, and so there'd be the three of them together. On the cover and that's how you knew it was a science fiction publication so into this comes james white and he says i want to write stories about people working together to solve problems so he he can he conceptualizes a hospital in space and the stories of hospital station are problem stories it's it's an awful lot like uh, uh house uh, it's called house in the u.s i believe it's dr house md in, in no 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 we call it house too the hugh laurie um yes, program. yeah so the thing is of course these are medical mysteries you know somebody comes in with a terrible medical problem and you have to try it to fix it so imagine then that it's a combination of a horrible medical problem and an alien first contact story because in many of the hospital station stories they're making first contact with an alien species and they have like a crashed spaceship or an extremely sick alien of a type that they have never encountered before first you have to find out well, how do we communicate with this being? Uh, what kind of what kind of atmosphere and gravity does it need? Um, and then there are, of course, always politics involved in these things. In the universe of Hospital Station, there is a uh, there's a, a an entity called the Monitor Corps. Uh, they don't have armies, but they do have monitors. And so this is kind of kind of the interstellar police force uh, that comes in and and takes care of problems that can only be solved with guns. But this is a small subset of the problems um, in these stories. The stories are mostly medical. The problems are mostly medical. And I love the characters. Some of the main characters are non-human. Um, there are um, there's a uh, an empathic bug called uh, Prilisla, um, which is which is kind of a, a human sized damselfly, very, very fragile being. Um, that can only exist in our gravity uh, by using a gravity nullifier. Um, and uh, there's a there's a the Trentor um, are a species of elephantine um, elephantine creatures that have a symbiote which has extremely fine manipulative tentacles. And so the, together, the Trantorians and their symbiotes are the best surgeons in the universe. Um, and and yeah, I mean I mean you know all of these things are stuck in my head from forty years ago. Um, that's how significant that book was to me. And I, I distinctly remember that I had a cousin um, who came by and dropped off a box of science fiction books that he had, that he was done with. And Hospital Station was the one that jumped out to me. And then uh, another another book that was very significant to me at that time was Ringworld, um, Larry Niven's uh, classic science fiction travelogue, really, about a group of people exploring a 
a world, a structure, which is a, a ring that surrounds a star. Um, so the inner surface of the, this is a ring that is as big in diameter as the orbit of the earth. So that it gets a, it gets an earth-like level of solar radiation at the surface, which means that the total surface area is enormous millions and millions of earths. And so you have many, many cultures, um, that exist on this ring world. But the problem is, is that because a ring world is an artificial thing, um, that when civilization falls, it falls hard. Um, and so civilization fell on the ring world tens of thousands of years ago. And so now the whole thing has has uh, collapsed into barbarism. But there's no, you know, you can't come back from it. There's no there's no possibility of mining um, because, you know, once you if you dig down too far, you hit vacuum. Uh, so um, it's an adventure story. It's an adventure story. It's a travelogue. Um, there's uh, there's politics. There's interspecies conflict. Um, and Larry Niven's aliens are the best. Um, the thing is, is that I still think of Larry Niven as one of the young Turks because he was an up and coming new writer in the seventies when I first started reading this stuff. Um, and he was in reaction to the previous generation, the, the Heinlein and Clark and Asimov generation. Uh, these days, of course, Larry Niven is, is one of the old guard. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit younger than Larry Niven, but I'm older than a lot of my science fiction writing peers who first uh, first broke out um, in the, I, I mean, I sold my first professional, I made my first professional sale in 2000, uh, but I was uh, 49 in 2000. Um, and most of the other writers who broke out at that time were in their 30s. So I am, I cross generations, yeah. uh, depending on who I'm thinking. If I'm hanging out with my science fiction fan friends, I'm often the youngest one in in the group because I'm uh, I'm generally I'm I'm right halfway between Generation X and the baby boom. Um, so when I hang out with science fiction fans, most of whom are boomers, I'm younger than the average. Uh, when I hang out with my science fiction writing peers, most of whom are Generation X, I tend to be the oldest. So it's an interesting place to be. So emerging from what you've been saying is that science fiction often takes the long view, the very long view, uh, in some cases, like the Ringworld book. Um, but looking at your own career in the same way, one thing that struck me, um, you saying that you had your first deal in 2000, more or less. Um, and that charts the period of the growth of the internet and probably at the end of the 2000s, social media and I have noticed, obviously, there's a very tight correlation between science fiction readers and being an early adopter of all these technologies just because, that you know, yes. they're savvy Absolutely. and they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, have you found that that's changed how you write or... Um, the, so you've gone from a world of pulp fiction, which is read in the family home, and now you're living in a space which is always open to the rest of the world, mm -hmm. always online always being molded by the conversation of the day. Um, have you found it's affected you as a writer and how you imagine the future in your books and the Absolutely. world? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, yeah, science fiction, science fiction is never about the future. It's always about the present. Mm. Um, science fiction is a way of projecting our hopes and fears about the future um, and making them concrete uh, because the primary tool of science fiction is the literalized metaphor. 
Um, that if you want to, if what you want to talk about is, is if you can, if you're, you know, if you're personally concerned about, for example, an unwanted pregnancy, uh, then you might wind up with something like alien where you, you literalize the metaphor of having this horrible thing growing inside yourself. Um, there are, there are lots and lots of science fictional stories that, I mean, you look at, you look at the trends, you know, in the 1950s, there was a lot of alien invasion fiction. Uh, that's because Americans were afraid of the Russians. Um, in the, in the 1980s, there was a lot of biological horror. Um, and then you have the cyberpunk, uh, movement, which is a response to the, uh, corporatization of, of the world in general. And, and really, you know, the cyberpunk movement was kind of prescient because cyberpunk's corporatized future has actually kind of come true, which is not a good thing. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Well, yes, I think that there is an element of science fiction creating a way of thinking about something which allows technology to move into the space as well. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. have to, you have to imagine it before you can design something. So yes, there, is and there, a are, there are a lot of people who have who have hung out hung out a shingle with their name on it and the word futurist. Um, most people who call themselves futurists. Well, most of the people I know who call themselves futurists are science fiction writers, either some of the time or most of the time. Cory Doctorow, for example, wears, wears both the hats of science fiction writer and person who is actually um, thinking about and influencing the future of technology. Uh, John Shirley describes himself as a futurist. Um, there are, um, I think David Brin would probably identify himself as a futurist. There are some people who call themselves futurists who are not science fiction writers. But if you look at what they're writing, they're writing basically science fiction with only setting and no characters. Um, because, of course, they're trying to envision a future um, and write about it in such a way that the reader can can put themselves into that future and think, gosh, this might be what's coming. What can I do to either make that happen or change it? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your latest book, uh, The Kuiper Belt Job, which mm -hmm. I sort of briefly described to myself as a, a kind of prison break story with a heist element with a crew of, uh, Desperado sounds like a Western, but it has that feeling of a, a crew of misfits put together to do the do the job. Um is that a fair description? Is there anything that you'd like? I love that description. That is that is very much the way I would have described it. If if some if somebody asked me to describe it, I describe it as a caper novel in space. Yeah. Um it's like a it's like a mashup of uh Firefly Leverage, The Expanse, Oceans Eleven. Um it's a combination of I mean, I think of it, I think of it as being like 
uh, Leverage, which is a U.S. TV show about a group of uh, con artists uh, who get together to help um, help the poor and downtrodden. Um, it's, it's Leverage set in the universe of The Expanse. Uh, it's also intended to echo the found family aspects of Leverage and especially Firefly. I think I think if you if you love Firefly, I believe you will like this book. That, that that's the that's the vibe that it's intended to capture. Well, that makes me think of Robin Hood as well because mm-hmm. yeah. i mean going back further in these idea of a band of people who don't naturally go together ganging up to uh you know be on the side of the poor is is a yeah. very strong theme so yeah. before we talk about the actual sort of method that you've got in your book what's your writing process people are always interested in how somebody sits down and starts writing a book and quite a lot of our listeners are people who are aspiring to do that do you have a what are your in, top tips? In my writing community, we often use the term plotter or pantser. Yeah. Uh, are you a person who plots everything out or do you fly by the seat of your pants? Um, I am, I'm on the plotter side of that equation, but the more, the more experience I get, the more, um, the more I do fly by the seat of my pants. Um, I, I still outline, but there are much bigger, bigger jumps, uh, from one outline point to another. So I'm, I'm pantsing my way through bigger chunks of the book. Um, I, I believe that as they get more experienced, most writers, uh, I mean, a writer might start out as being a pure plotter or a pure pantser, but I think that as you gain experience, you begin adopting aspects of the other philosophy that work for you. Um, so I'm, I'm, my writing process is I start out, uh, I start out by opening a file. Um, I have a my my system my system is is that every story uh starts off with a kind with a kind of a code name um you know a brief a brief file name uh and for the Kuiper Belt job it was called breakout because it because it is as you as is suggested structured around a prison break um so then i have breakout.doc which is the which is the manuscript and breakout-notes.doc and that notes file is kind of my chronological diary of the writing of the book um, it is a, I mean, I will just sit there and I will basically talk out loud on paper. I'll type things like, well, okay, so I want this to be a story about so-and-so. And and so what does that mean that I need to do? And if I do some research, I'll put my notes in that file. And if I do an outline, I'll put the outline in that file. And if I later modify the outline, then I'll copy and paste the outline down into the into the current day because it's it's written as a as a diary basically every time i sit down and start writing i'll put the the date and and where i am um and then as the outline grows and changes i'll copy and paste it so you can so i can actually look back and see previous iterations of the outline in the same file um and i'll put character sketches and if i write something and then delete it i'll put the deleted piece in there so usually the notes file winds up being three or four times the size of the the size of the finished story um and and so my i spend a lot of time toward the beginning of the process doing what i call noodling which is just sitting and kind of kind of talking out loud on paper about well suppose we could do this well i could do it this way or i could do it that way oh that one's really interesting let's run with that and see how it goes um and so um and so i will noodle like that for on a novel i could do that for months before i actually begin drafting um and uh, and so Basically, whenever I'm writing, I have both the draft file and the notes file open, and I will bop back and forth between them. Um, but like, like when I run into something, I'll go over to the, if I, if suppose I, suppose I'm, I'm drafting along and suddenly I realize, oh, wait a minute, 
I have no idea what I have no idea what this character looks like. So then I'll bop over to the notes file and I go, okay, I just hit a place where I don't know what the character looks like. So let me think about, you know, well, I want this character to be visually distinct from the other characters. So that means that I probably don't want to have just another white guy. Well, actually, I try not to have too many white guys in my work anymore. Um, but anyway, so so I, I will go back and forth between the draft file and the notes file. Um, and then after the draft is finished, then in the notes file, I will, you know, I'll I'll record any critique comments that I receive. Uh, if I need to go back and redo something, I'll talk about the process of going back and redoing it. So, and the notes file you know starts before the draft uh, begins and continues long after. Like right now, my notes file for the Kuiper Belt job is talking about marketing. You know, I've got I've got things about the podcast that I'm that I'm scheduled for and stuff like that. That's a very complete record. That's, yeah. a, that's a, actually I don't think I've met someone who's done it quite like that. Well, and the great thing, I don't diary, but the great thing is, is that if I need to know, hey, where was I on thus and such mm. a date, if I know which project I was working on, then I can usually find it in the notes file. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I noticed um, when I was reading your book that um, you clearly really enjoy working out the impact of the science of the world, the physics, I should say, the yes. physics of the I world. I do love it. I do love it. So, yeah. Um, for example, the the different kinds of gravity. And, and that seems to me something you've inherited from um, the hospital um, hospital ship you mentioned um, yes. because of the, that, that I can see a definite correlation there. But I also was interested that you were bringing into the science fiction world some real identifiable illnesses like Parkinson's and disability and things like that. Is that yes. something you felt was missing that you make a conscious effort to mainstream issues that a lot of us have and live with? Yes, yes that is, that was, that was deliberate. I, okay. So as a, as a white guy, I am very conscious of my privilege and working hard to use my privilege to uplift those who don't have it. Um, you know, I can't, in and of myself, there's nothing that I there's nothing that I can do as a writer to um, you know to to get more writers of color and 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 you, you, you know and writers writers you should pardon the expression writers of gender uh, writers with disabilities. There's there I, I do try I do try to promote um, to promote writers of color. Uh, N.K. Jemison um, and uh, and Temis Bradford and um, um, Nadia Korofor, you, you know, I mean, these are all these are all people that I've that I've I've met through the science fiction community, and I do try to, I do try to, well, like when people say, "Hey, can you recommend a book?" I will always try to recommend a book by a woman or a writer of color, if at all possible. Um, and so, I am a white guy, but I can try to make my characters more diverse. Um, so one of my goals for this particular book, this is a, this is an ensemble, you know, you, you know, there, there are five viewpoint characters and a total, total main cast of something in the vicinity of 10. Um, and, uh, I, and one of my goals was no white guys. Um, there is, there is one, uh, white woman in the main cast. Um, but she has, she has Parkinson's, as you said. Um, and, and the thing is my particular, I recognize that we need to have more disabilities in our science fiction, uh, because almost all of us will become disabled to some extent at some point in our lives. Um, and, and so acknowledging disability as part of the human experience is something that we have not done very well at in our fiction. Uh, and so I'm, I'm doing what I can. The particular, uh, the particular case of, 
a lot of one of the problems that people have that people run into when they try to include divert and try to include disabled characters in their work is that the disability is either like a um it's an inspirational thing where where oh look at this disabled character they're so plucky um or um or the disabled character is an object of pity um or the disability is somehow magically eliminated uh at the end of the book oh look the disabled character is rewarded by becoming not disabled anymore and that's how that's not how real life works you know disabled people generally speaking stay disabled um or or i mean or i mean You've probably heard the term temporarily able-bodied. That's the term that I use for myself, you know. But there are plenty of disabilities that unfortunately do not go away. Uh, they can be worked around. Um, they can be improved. Um, but dealing with disability is a part of the disability experience. And so, I, my, you know, I gave I gave this character. And the thing is, this character is a thief. Um, her her skill set, her reason to be is that she she fiddles things you know that she she is the person who picks the lock and clambers into tight spaces and crawls up walls okay so to give her a disability a physical disability is a way of challenging her self-image and forcing her to question what am i really you, you, you know okay. what is what is my what is my identity and so and so what i'm what i'm doing is i'm i'm trying to take away some of the things that she thinks makes her her and force her to find out what what is she really because she's still a thief she just you know her hands are not are not what they were and so i gave her specifically a walker um because uh my wife who passed away about seven years ago um she had brain cancer and so she was uh, it affected her mobility so she was using a walker for the last two years of her life and we both hated the damn thing it was it was so important because it made it possible for her to get out of the house and do things. And it was so much of a hassle to deal with the damn thing, getting it in and out of the trunk and stuff. And so I wanted to capture I wanted to, to specifically have a character with a walker to show that this is an assistive technology that makes things possible that would otherwise be be impossible and is also just a royal pain and a terrible thing and a constant reminder of the fact that you are not physically what you had hoped to be. And so that's why that's why I gave her a walker. And that's why I'm very pleased that the walker is on the cover. Because that is an important part of who she is and who she becomes. Because the the novel uh has a there's a uh, there's a flashback interstitial uh that occurs between sections showing how the gang uh how the gang they had a big they had a big job that they thought was going to um that they thought was going to set them up for life and it didn't go well most of the book takes place 10 years later and so in the flashback sequences alicia is a confident physically able thief in the present day she's dealing with disabilities and has to find a way to cope with this and the way that i have her cope with it is to learn to be part of a community to understand that just because she is not physically able to do the things that she used to be able to do, she still has all of that knowledge and all of that learning, and she can pass this information along to other people uh, within her community. And so it really is a found family. Yeah. Uh, you all, mentioned all of, the, all of the characters are dealing with things that have changed in the yeah. last 10 years. You mentioned already that you've got multiple points of view. I think you said there were five. Uh, and I was also interested, in fact, you start with a we perspective. Yes which is enunciated by obviously one character, but 
clearly they've got this sort of um, gang name for themselves, so the Cannibal Crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the Wii sections are, are are sort of giving a sense of they had a joint identity, which is fragmented and split apart. Mm-hmm. So obviously you begin to understand that even at that point, the sort of Hylison days of the past, there were already tensions that were going to blow them apart because they mm-hmm. had you know different characters do you find that quite hard as a writer writing in the wee perspective um or managing your five different points of view is there a feeling that of refreshment when you go to a different point of view or do you think oh there's too many plates spinning i'm not sure if i can keep them all going um i'm really glad to hear you say these things about the relationship of the wee point of view to the uh to the the tensions that exist between the characters even in, even within that section um so i'm you're really you're really picking up what i'm putting down here doing doing first person plural um point of view is is a writing challenge that i set for myself i would actually go so far as to call it a stunt um and um and also the the five point uh, the five uh first person points of view first person singular points of view I chose to write each one as a single large chunk, uh, about 20,000 words from each one, rather than doing the usual thing that you find in novels with multiple points of view of switching back and forth between them. Um, And this was, I honestly can't say where it came from. It's like, I think I'm going to, I'm not sure this is going to work, but I think I'm going to try it. And I think it did work. It was just, it was a way of, of, you know, kind of challenging myself and stretching my writing muscles. One nice thing about having a long, chunk in a single point of view is you really get to know the character and i really got to know the characters writing this book i i love i love them all in different ways um, and then you get and, that experience of actually seeing that character from the outside yeah. um through the lens of somebody else which is great fun as well mm-hmm. yeah because in a I sense think- what they've what they may have been mi- misunderstanding how other people see them uh so it's like there's an element of could be comedy could be surprise could be betrayal all these mm-hmm. sorts of things can go on if you flip your point of view i am so glad to hear that you to hear that that, that you you came away from the book with with that because that is really what i was trying to do i find that when i read from this book i love i love reading my own work um and i have a whole i have i have a whole uh, whole self-funded book tour uh coming up um that i tend to read the end of one pov section skip over the intersectional and uh, skip over the intersectional and then read and so i read the end of one pov and then the switch and then the beginning of the next pov because those are some of the most dramatic places in the uh, in the book um my agent and i worked on moving moving the, the the transition points around um in order to in order to get the you know get get the maximum maximum tension release um and so, yeah. So um, there was uh, there's a section where uh, where Kane, uh, the hitter, um, is uh, having a big fight in a zero gravity casino, um, and uh, Alicia, the thief, um, comes in and comes in and saves him at the last minute. And I actually wrote that whole fight uh, entirely from his perspective. And then later on, I went back and recast the second half of it in her point of view. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And and that is, you know, that is a fascinating exercise. I would recommend that almost I would recommend for any any writer uh to write a scene and then go back and write that same scene from the point of view of a different character. Um because 
you change you change your language uh you change i mean you change your 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 pacing your sentence length um the vocabulary there's so many things that should change when you change to a different point of view and it's a very interesting exercise to force yourself to look at exactly what changes when you change to a different character's point of view and so that um that was a that was a really interesting exercise and i'm glad i did and i think i think the transition happens in the right place now thanks for listening to mythmakers podcast brought to you by the oxford center for fantasy visit oxfordcenterforfantasy.org to join in the fun find out about our online courses in person stays in oxford plus visit our shop for great gifts tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts worldwide Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.